Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. I'm thrilled to say that my guest for this episode is an acclaimed record producer with 20 Grammy Awards, 20 to his name. He's been behind the desk for Elvis Costello's record since 2018. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Sebastian Chris. Hi, how are you? Happy Sunday morning. Yes, buenos dias. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's a lot rainier and colder over here than I imagine it is for you today. Yeah, no, no, no rain and we need some actually in Southern California. <laughs> We've got plenty over here if you want us to send some across. Um, listen, congratulations on your most recent success at the Latin Grammys. You must be starting to run out of space around the house now for all of these awards, are you? Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. I, I've i started, um, I, I'm not supposed to because they're technically not mine, but I've, I've asked some people to hold on to some of them as right. that have been an uh, important part of my life. So it's it makes for a good... Uh, makes for a good gift which really makes my brother and sister angry whenever you know i give one to my mom or something because they actually went out and bought you know spent the time and were thoughtful and bought something Uh, so that was for the one s album the most recent one wasn't it yeah yeah it was it was a surprise actually uh that we won that um there was there were a few albums in there that that we were really big fans of and and you know were were very deserving but you know the the academy thought otherwise but it's we've we've been on both ends of that um you know the thing about awards is that if you're making music to get an award you're making music for the wrong reasons mm-hmm. so it's just it's really nice to get recognized but it's it's nicer to be employed and and work on music that you love and and get to do that every day yeah and what are you working on at the moment? Uh, actually, working on a new Juanes record. Um, working on a on a movie musical. Uh, what else am I doing? Well, I have I have a record label, so mm. mixing some of the some of the artists that are on the label. Um, I, I stay busy. Yeah. I, I said to myself I was going to work less this year, and that's not working out, which is fine. You know, I'm not <laughs> not complaining. No. Good, good. Well, I mean, you've engineered and produced some incredible artists over the years. And you got your big break in Miami, I think, didn't you? What was your sort of way into the industry? Um, I, I grew up in Miami. I was born in, in Argentina, uh, moved to Miami when I was a kid. And um, really, I sort of harassed the receptionist at Emilio and Gloria Stefan studio, which had a, a really great, I just wanted to work in a place that, that was work, you know, doing high level uh, work um, and, and learn and, and be an apprentice to people that were really doing it. And, and at that time they had really the best studio in Miami. Um, I, I, I would say, Criteria is probably the most famous studio in Miami, and they they had kind of fallen off a, a little bit, and and they're definitely back now. But just to contextualize it, um, Criteria 
you know, has been around for about 50 years. They they recorded uh, James Brown, I Feel Good, uh, Saturday Night Fever. Um, uh, who else did they do there? I mean, it's it's uh, Bob Dylan's recorded there, R.E.M. Um, most of the, like, Missy Elliott um, stuff was done there. You know, Aretha Franklin. It's a great studio. Tom Dowd, who I don't know if you know much about Tom Dowd, was, that was mm-hmm. kind of his second home when he was the the staff producer and engineer for atlantic records um derek and the dominoes layla was recorded there um so you know i just wanted to work at a great studio and and i called the phone number of the studio every day for two months until one day the receptionist was late and the studio manager answered um right and they gave me a job interview and i i interned for three months for free. I didn't get a job right away. And then I became an assistant and was there for about 12 years. Um, so that was, that was really it. My, my big engineering break was probably, um, I did a Shakira record, um, early on in her career when she was more of a, more of a singer songwriter, which was actually, it's, it's a record that, that people really loved. Um, it's in the, I think Rolling Stone 500 greatest albums of all time lists, which, you know, those things are trivial, but it's kind of nice to, to get recognized 20 something years after the fact. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was, that was the, the big engineering break. And were there particular engineers and producers that you looked up to at that point? Um, Phil Ramon was definitely uh, someone who, and, and I got to work with who, did um a lot of the Billy Joel records and and was just a a great great producer um Hugh Padgham who did you know the Police and Genesis albums uh T-Bone Burnett for sure mm-hmm. um uh, Rick Rubin Al Schmitz probably the greatest engineer who ever lived and was a wonderful wonderful guy um Chad Blake Mitchell Froom you know Kevin Killen uh, there, there, there were a bunch really that just made, you know, I, I never bought albums based on who engineered them or, or who produced them, but there were consi- I would consistently buy albums and see some of the same names like Kevin's on a bunch of records. You know, he did Peter Gabriel. So, and he did spike and mighty like a rose and, um, uh, Juliet letters and a bunch of Elvis's mm-hmm. stuff as well. Um, so he was very, very diverse and just, I finally got to meet him about a week ago. Uh, so that was a real oh, thrill. Really. Yeah, as you say, some of those names appear on Costello Records over the years, as yours has appeared over the last five years as well. And I know as well as working with Elvis, you are a genuine long-term fan of his music as well. Just tell us a little bit about how that came about and what your introduction to Elvis's music was. So like a lot of people, I was in college, you know, um, and I have a, a friend that's that's a good friend uh, to this day, and he... Um, we were talking about favorite artists and you know he he mentioned that his favorite artist was was Elvis and I said I really don't know much about him other than I know that he had written with McCartney um, for Flowers in the Dirt I was 19 or 20 um, maybe I'd heard a couple of songs so I said give me a primer and he said that's kind of impossible there's too much music um, and you know I was like well try um, and he gave me a bunch of, of CDs and I kind of went through them and really it was, 
armed forces that I really connected with and, and specifically Green Shirt. And it was really because, you know, growing up in Argentina, we had, we had fled the military dictatorship and, and just a lot of the imagery of that song took me there. Um, you know, and the, and the sound of it and the, the, you know, obviously the tune, just, just a great, great song. And that's, that was kind of in, and then, and then I I really got into Get Happy. Um, that was a record that I, that I really loved, um, you know, B movie, just all, I just thought the writing was really original and different than things I've heard before. And, and, and it sounded familiar, but at the same time, very original. You know, it, it, they sound the song sounded like like R and B records, or or you know, like they had a touch of the Beatles or a touch of the Who, and but it wasn't you know, it wasn't paint by numbers. So, what was the first record that you got when it was a contemporary release? Would that have been around early nineties um, time? Yeah, it was a Mighty Like a Rose, um, right? Which which. I never understood why it got the reviews it got because um, no. I, I think it's a it's you know it's a fantastic album. Um, I just I wasn't emotionally attached to to the early stuff, you know. Like everybody's always wanting an artist to remake their first two records for the rest of their lives, and the only band that has successfully done that is ACDC, <laughs> you know that that have <laughs> sort of. You know, I, I think uh, they quoted Angus Young one time. He said, "What do you say to critics that that have that say that you've been making the same record for the last twenty years?" He says, "I say they're wrong. We've been making it for the last twenty-five. <laughs> you know, so uh, which is a band I love, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah. But but um, yeah, it was it was mighty like a rose, and I really you know I really liked uh, how to be dumb." Um, just because I was kind of surrounded in college by a lot of people that that seemed like they were, you know, that song was talking about them. <laughs> you know, it, it was just, you could relate to, you know, to the lyrics in, in that kind of way. Yeah. That was my first Elvis album as well. So I, I share your your view on it and also I don't think it gets the credit it deserves and it's obviously a good way into his music for both of us and here we are Sebastian all these years later with yeah. 20 Grammy Awards between us so it's <laughs> obviously you know <laughs> right. lit a fire for both of us yeah yeah and you know and that I mean talk about songs uh you know so like candy is mm-hmm. you know just I mean is there is there a better record than that you know, by any artist, period. You know, it's mm. it's just, I mean, it, it's just a great, a great record. Well, we'll see which of these songs that you've mentioned and others that you've picked to put onto the playlist, but we're going to do that a little bit later on in the conversation because first I just want to run through, uh, in some sort of chronological order, the music that you've made with Elvis over the years. Yeah. Now, the first thing that was released would have been Losing Game by La Santa Celia, on which you're both credited as songwriters, but that wouldn't have been the first time in the studio with him, would it? No, the the first time was um, when Marisol from from La Santa Cecilia uh, was invited to uh, sing on the roots uh, on Wise Up Coast, and um, we were in LA and um, and recorded her vocal uh, at Village, I think at the Village Recorder, um, and it was you know it was great. It was a great 
uh, I just engineered it. I mean, I was just happy to be in the room. Mi padre sabía, me lo susurró. It's really nice to work with people that you're a fan of their music, um, but at the same time, you know, you, you have a job to do, so you have to kind of, you know, put put all that aside because if, if not, you, you're just acting like an idiot and you know, and not and not getting your job done, and everybody's there to work. So it's, um, you know, you you really you really just try to go in and and do what you have to do so that everybody can be happy and and get on with whatever you know else they have to do whether it's on on the record or, or with their day uh, but it was yeah. it was great it was a great it was a great session and it was a great experience so was that laying down the whole track there or were you just no just her vocal. vocals on tape it yeah. was just yeah. marisol's vocal um you know that record was done by steve mandel and Questlove, and and i i, I really i mean i i became a fan of of mandel's work through that um through that album i think he's a you know brilliant engineer i mean he has a whole other um perspective on sound and music and um i, I just i just love what he does so that track comes out on wise up ghost credited to elvis and the roots in 2013 that same year is when losing game comes out as well and you and elvis are both credited as songwriters on this track as well just tell us a little bit about how that came about um well the band you know i i we were doing la santa cecilia's first album for universal um i had worked with them before uh they're they're if you haven't checked them out check them out they're just a an incredible band uh from la that really if you threw la into a musical blender uh that's what would come out the other end um <laughs> you know and uh Marisol had written this song and what happened was when when we finished Wise Up Coast, uh, the song for Wise Up Coast, you know, Elvis said, listen, I really appreciate you guys doing this. If there's anything I can do, um, you know, don't hesitate. And there was a song and we didn't hesitate. You know, we <laughs> we we asked him to, um, you know, to sing and and write his verses on it. So um the band and i had worked on the body of the song and then there was you know we had left open uh the verses in the bridge uh, for elvis to to do his thing and i i remember i was in the airport like six o'clock in the morning when the email came in with his part and it was you know it was a real thrill to hear we start to fight i put up my paws so man's a swift and slide and deceptive like dreams and words like screams You know, and, it, and it's an interesting collaboration because you have this Latin band uh, mostly 
uh, Mexican Americans and you know a very Latin song in English uh, and how you how do you connect that to to somebody like Elvis but if you followed his career you know that you know he's not a, a monothematic musical artist um, so it was yeah it was really I mean it was a it was a really great great experience and you know everybody did their thing and and it's you know if you're a, a band doing your debut for a major label having a collaboration like that is is really you know quite something Next came Dio Contiamo in right. 2017, the Vega track, which Elvis sings on. Yeah. Uh, just tell us a little bit about that one. It's in Italian. I don't speak Italian and Vega doesn't speak Italian. And we were doing a tribute to Italian music. Um, and she, you know, she asked me when we were doing the album, do you think Elvis might want to might wanna sing on this? And I said, he was doing the tour for um, for the book, for his autobiography. And he, mm. would, he had come through LA when she was in town. And I introduced him and, you know, I, I thought, you know that's that could happen i mean it's in italian it's a it's a cover tune you know from the san remo uh festival why not you know and and we approached him about it and you know that's that's a great thing is that he his interests lie in music um you know and, and you can have an independent artist from spain go on making a, a record of italian songs and if it in, if it interests him he'll He'll jump in, you know, just in the same way that you might have a superstar do something and approach him to do something uninteresting. And he'll be like, you know, that's not really something that musically uh, piques my interest, you know. So, um, you know, I, I think that's the ethic of, a, of somebody who does this as a profession in every sense of the word. Um, so he... You know, he said yes, and and I think he was in Vancouver. We recorded it, and and there's a duet in Italian, uh, sung by two artists who don't speak Italian. <laughs> so sounds pretty know. convincing to yeah. me. I have to say. Io come ti amo, mi viene da piangere in tutta la mia vita. Gorgeous guitar sound on that track, and that's Pete Thomas on drums, I think, isn't it? Yeah, as well? yeah. I, I got you know, living in LA, I work with Pete a lot. I I was a uh, I was a fan, not just from the work he did with Elvis, but also just the brilliant work he did with uh, Los Lobos. 
if you haven't heard of Kiko or Colossal Head, um, they're just two landmark albums. Uh, and, you know, I just became a fan of his work. And, and through, after meeting Elvis, I, I got to meet Pete and Davey and, and worked with them on several albums. Uh, they're, they're just great musicians, you know, better people. And anytime we get to be in the studio together, it's, it's, it's a thrill. And I brought him in to do that record. not the kind of story you deny in a frame under glass they'll always be together and so in love but photographs can lie so after these Initial collaborations with Elvis, that has obviously worked really well for both of you, both musically and personally, because we get a full-length collaboration here with you co-producing Look Now, which comes out to a fantastic set of reviews and awards when that's released in 2018. And does getting that gig come off the back of those previous collaborations having gone so Um, well? You know, it's... I mean, it was quite a bit later... Um, I think it was five years later or four years later. Um, it, it was really, I think, uh, a number of things, but Pete, I think, was pretty responsible in that. You know, when, when Elvis called Pete um, to do the album, Pete suggested that maybe I should be uh, part of it because uh, we had done quite a few records together at that point. And, um, you know, I guess he thought with the way I work and, and knowing obviously the way Elvis works, that would be a good match in, in a, more of that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of record where you just, you know, together for months and, and sort of sorting it out. Um, you know, I got the call from Pete and he said, would you, you know, w- would you be interested in this? And I was like, obviously, yes. And then I got a call from Elvis and he started sending me demos and I went from excitement to just fear of being found out, <laughs> you know, <Nice>. yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. it's the imposter syndrome, you know? Um, so we, you know, I, I got all these demos um, and then we just started going through it and, you know, it was a, a great experience, but it was also a double-edged sword for me because I was, um, it was right before I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, so I was going through a lot of, uh, one of the uh, symptoms of Parkinson's is depression, so I didn't understand why I was doing this gig that I had literally waited, you know, my whole career to get an opportunity like this, and, you know, doing a good job, but at the same time dealing with uh, with depression, which I didn't, which, you know, it didn't make sense why I was feeling that way, and working on something that I was, you know, absolutely engaged in and loved uh, what we were doing. 
but you know it worked out uh it's it's a really wonderful record um uh, um you know and it was a it was a great great experience i mean it, that certainly kept me on my toes um you know just the thing about about that record is working with the imposters i'm i'm going into a situation where you've had people that have been collaborating for you know four decades and then with davy for a couple of decades and you're jumping into a dynamic that's very solidified you know the way they work so i had to figure out what that was quickly and and you know where do i fit into that whole you know dynamic of working and it was you know it was definitely a challenge uh for me professionally i mean in a, in the best way in the way you want to be challenged uh of trying to figure out how to how to fit into um you know what your role is in in uh in the making of an album yeah and your role on this one is quite interesting in the sense that elvis seemed to have a very clear idea of what he wanted look now to be he yeah, talked about sure. making an album with the scope of Imperial Bedroom and some of the beauty and emotion of Painted from Memory, does that make your job easier when you know what the artist is is trying to achieve with a record? Well, it, it makes it makes your job easier when you work with somebody that knows what they want, yeah. um, and, and it makes it funner, you know, because you're not guessing, you're not trying to read minds, you're not, you know, shooting in the dark. It, it just becomes a matter of can you execute or not. And can you facilitate what their vision is? You know, and that was one of the things about, you know, sometimes you you uh, you have a career in production or, or you're a musician and you want to work with with people that you've admired. But the thing that's difficult about jumping into a situation working with Elvis is that, you know, he hasn't really made bad records. So... There's other artists that I admire where I go like, you know, I could make a better record than what they just put out. Mm-hmm. With with him, it was more like, oh, crap. You know, I like all the records he's put out. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to be the one making the bad record. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't want to be the one, you know, the blemish in this brilliant recording career. Uh, so that that's a little bit daunting. Uh, in that sense, but it was, you know, it was funny when we mixed the first song. I completely missed the mark, and I and I got the call, and he was like, he was like, you know, what we did, that's not it, and and it was it was a really great moment of figuring out, you know, how to adapt kind of what I what I could do or what I had in my head to what he had. Um, yeah. and it was, you know, and from then on, uh, it was, it was, I mean, we, we worked very hard on the mixes and on nailing, uh, what we wanted to, to hear back, but you have to trust the artists you work with and you have to trust that they, their sensibility and, and, you know, as well as trust yourself, but mm-hmm. figure out where those points connect, you know, and be at the service of the music really. Yeah. And when Elvis is referencing Imperial Bedroom and Painted from Memory, are there specific elements of those records that you're looking to emulate on Look Now? Or is it no. more just about the feel that those records have that you're looking to try and No, go down and, and that really, road again? I mean, 
It was more conceptual. You know, you don't want to yeah, make yeah. the record you that somebody already made. And you can't. You know, I mean, you can't make Imperial Bedroom again. And you can't make Painted for Memory again. And, and I wasn't a part of those records. So I, I don't know how they were made. Um, I, I think it was just a general a general feeling of, you know, the kind of pop record that he was trying to achieve. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there were other references as well that weren't from his catalog that, you know, that, that we listened to and sent out. And it was, you know, and, it, and the references weren't sonic references. It was just, it's more like the picture you're trying to paint and more the, the feeling you're trying to convey with the music. Um, you know, the, the problem with great songs is that you can do them in any style. So it, it's great to have a clear picture of what the aesthetic you want. Um, and I think, you know, the reference to Imperial Bedroom or Painted from Memory was more that it was going to be a, a, an orchestrated, you know, it wasn't going to be an off-the-cuff record. It was going to be very deliberate and the orchestration and arrangements were deliberate and, and you know, thought out um, in a more meticulous manner than, say, you know, a more rock and roll record like, uh, you know, like Delivery Man, which is a, a you know, beautiful album. Uh, but I'm guessing it was more sort of arranged on the spot. And that's just a guess. I wasn't there. Uh, yeah. But 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 it, it feels more of like that kind of record that was, you know, hey, let's get in the room and sort out the arrangement. This was more of the let's write out the arrangement, mm. you know, let's figure out the orchestration. Yeah. And when you hear those demos come through from Elvis as a producer, how quickly are you formulating in your head what you think the finished record should sound like? Um. You know, with, with that record, it was more really a lot of dialogue with him because uh, he had some very clear ideas. Uh, for me, you know, I felt like my job on that record was partly that, but also just what's the best way to execute those ideas? How how can we be, uh, how can it be, um, have the emotion and be effective once you're trying to capture that? that feeling um you know and again you're also stepping into a situation where it's not just what i have in my head or what he has in his head it's also you know the imposters and what they bring to the table i mean there's some really great there's there's really great contributions by all by the whole band i mean there's some some of the bass playing on that record is you know really phenomenal and informed you know, Davy's ideas really informed the the arrangement of the songs. Um, same thing with Pete. You know, Pete's a, the kind of drummer that arranges his parts. He's not just like sitting there bashing away. Um, you know, and and everybody knows. You know, Steve Naive comes at it from a completely different perspective than probably any other keyboard player on the planet. So, you know, it was a matter of just getting everybody on the same page and executing. And and if there was, you know, an idea or something that needed to happen, what was the best way to to have that idea happen? But, you know, like I would have never thought, let's put bassoon on a song. I mean, that's Elvis, you know, yeah. like that. Yeah. That's not a that's not something I would come up with. 
This is Dangerous Amusements, a podcast with a suitcase of phony wisdom to dispense. Another element in the mix in some of these sessions as well is Burt Bacharach. What was that like as an experience? Uh, well, we were we were cutting the basic tracks and, you know, Elvis said, listen, uh, plans for Thursday have changed. Bert's coming in. <laughs> and then you go like, you know, you really go like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. You know, because now you have an institution <laughs> walking through the door. And, you know, and he and Bert really ran that session. I mean, it was amazing to watch, you know, and, and, it, and it's it never ceases to amaze me when you, you know, like when Pete Thomas sits down behind the drums, he sounds like Pete Thomas. You know, I could sit down behind his drum kit and bash away and I'll never sound like Pete Thomas. And, you know, the same thing goes for Bert. He sat down at the piano and all of a sudden it's like, God, it just sounds like Bert Bacharach, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was it was incredible. I mean, it was an incredible day you can't really articulate what that's like. You're just at that moment, you're just going to hyper-focus and you're just, you know, and, and we were not in, um, we were in a, in a room that didn't have any separation. So the piano was in the room with the drums and the bass and Steve naive. And then Elvis was playing guitar behind. Actually, I, I don't remember if he played guitar on those songs. I don't think he did till that till later but he was singing live in the control room and it's a tiny little room it's where they cut um pet sounds by the beach boys oh wow yeah yeah um you know it's it's not a it's not a very big room at all but we could you know we had to make it work because that's where we were and he was coming in so you know it's it was it was great fun i mean it's burt Bacharach, you know yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you played percussion on Photographs Can Lie as well. Is that, did you get to play that with Bird? No, no, no. That, I, that would have never happened in time. Um, no. no, no. I. It, it's the only way I make it onto a record is because I can control how, how to edit. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, no, no. That, that happened way after. Yeah. Well, Rolling Stone magazine named Look Now as one of the best albums of 2018 and said the production is tight and nuanced, making it the sort of record he's always aspired to. And did you get the sense while you were making the record that this is something special? Um, you know, when, when I heard the songs, I, I felt that. Um, I mean, it was special to me, but I didn't, I didn't quite put it into that you know, I couldn't view it that way. It was, you, you're, again, you're just, you're focused on, on the job, you know? And I, I think, you know, sometimes people, the connotation of job or work is a negative one in our society. Um, you know, that, that's a great job, <laughs> you know, that you get called for. So I just wanted it to, to be as good as it could be. And by the time we, we finished it, people were telling me it was really good. Um, it's hard to tell when you're in it. Yeah. Um, Elvis knew. He's been doing this longer than I have. You know, he's like, this is a really great, great album. And I mean, there were songs on there that I'm, I'm very proud of the whole record, but there's there's certainly songs like, you know, um, The Sun or the Stars, for instance, mm-hmm. which, 
you know, I just, I just think it's just such a unique piece of music. You know, I still listen to that and go like, wow, we, we did that, you know, and it's, yeah. um, and it was funny. I, I heard somebody panning it the other day and that's, that's how music is, you know, Really, it's like, really? it's like, okay, you know, like they don't get it. And, and it's, you know, probably one of my favorite things that I've worked on. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the thrills of the album as a listener is it's a great record, but also it's an unexpected record as well, because certainly after National Ransom, Elvis had intimated he may not do any more records. And we'd had a couple of fantastic collaborative efforts in the years after that. Wise Up Ghost and Lost on the River are both brilliant records. But the idea of a brand new full-length album of new Elvis Costello songs didn't seem like something that was in the pipeline. So to get one and for it to be this good made it such a yeah such I, a, you know a we, we had conversations about that through the years and i think partly it's um when record making becomes a creative outlet you know if it stops being a creative outlet it's really difficult when it becomes purely a you know an endeavor to just because you have to do it it's sort of like you know artists sometimes and i'm not saying elvis specifically i just in general get into this mode of i gotta make a record i gotta go on tour i gotta make a record i gotta go on tour and i think with elvis and and his discography you see that he is always exploring so if he didn't have something to explore why bother you know you're not gonna go make my aim is true again um you know and he he's not an artist that looks back very often if at all so there has to be a, a purpose to to the work and you know that was one of the great things about meeting somebody like him because i was the same way you know i would get called for you know i'd, I'd make a record and it was a hit and i'd get called from like three people hey, i want you to work on my album and i want it to sound like this thing that you made my yeah, response yeah. was like, well, I already did that. You know, there's no no reason for me to do that other than, you know, feeding my family and I can figure out another way to do that. So, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm glad he did, you know, and, and the thing that I'm really proud of, of the this, you know, body of work these last couple of years is that there's this misconception that artists of a certain age are no longer able to be creative or you know their best years are behind them and you know i'll put up the the work that he's done you know in the last five ten years some of some of it together some of it with other people against any of the work that he did early on i mean i i think he just he never stopped making great music which is really impressive you know because a lot of artists lose that that muse i guess you know mm-hmm. And not that you needed any external vindication for Look Now, but if you did, you get it from the Grammys at the 62nd Awards. Uh, you guys rock up. Presumably, Sebastian, you've got your own parking space now at the Grammy <laughs> Awards because you're there so often. Uh, and uh, and the guys walk away with Best Traditional Pop Vocal Album, which uh, I know when Kitten was on, she was saying they knew they'd got a great record between you all, but the competition for that award was so tough that nobody was necessarily expecting to walk away with the award that night. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it was such a, I mean, that was a, that was a great day, especially being there, you know, with Pete, with, with Davey, with, 
with Elvis and just being able to share in that moment. And it was it was great because I, I believe if it wasn't the last award of the night, it was like uh, of the pre, you know, they give awards before the TV show. And I think yeah. it was the last or the second to last award. Um, and the great thing was, you know, when they called his name and he, and he was walking up, you could really sense in the room that there was a real sense of, of respect and awe of not just for, for the work that he did with, with this album, but the fact that the Academy had not really recognized his, his work either with the attractions or with the imposters or as a solo artist. Um, you know, I believe the award he had before was for uh, Painted for Memory which was a collaborative album. I don't know if he had, I knew he'd been nominated, um, but he hadn't been, um, you know, he, he hadn't won. So it was a really great moment to see, you know, the people in the room and the Academy just recognize this great artist. I have always needed somebody So I close the door to keep out the world But for you, I would be here all along Locked in a photograph All of the clocks have run down Love will be The next record that comes out is this wonderful EP, Purse, which has uh, the tracks Elvis and Paul McCartney, Johnny Cash, Burt Bacharach and Bob Dylan. Um, was Were they recorded during the Look Now sessions or were yeah. they a, a specific yeah, we, separate job? Yeah, they were recorded all at the, at the same time. Um, the um, Actually, Lovers That Never Were was probably the first thing we recorded. Um right. For the look now sessions, um, the the Johnny Cash tune we actually did live. The date that uh, Bert came in and worked, it was sort of our like, okay, let's test everything out before he gets here, um, and it was it was great, you know, it was a great uh, great record. But at that point, um, yeah, they were all done sort of in the same run, and then you know it was more the decision of okay what goes on on this record and then what you know what goes on the um you know he 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 kept talking about wanting wanting to do this ep so he had it in his head you know it, it, it just for us it was just you know recording all at once but he he had it pretty clear that he was going to split off these these other tunes uh into something else I listen to this EP a lot. I really enjoy it, and I think... Oh, I love it. You must have been having fun in the studio because it comes across on the record as well. And, you know, I was saying to you, I just adore the lovers that never were, so I, you know, I will devour all of these versions, whether yeah. it's the original and off the ground, the demos that Paul and Elvis did. Yeah, the... I mean, the, the original demo of that song is just... It's just unbelievably great. yeah. You know the the performances, uh, the vocal performances on that demo are just, you know, you're you're floored, and I think that's why we took the route that we did. You know, because because mm. that's kind of 
gonna stand on its own so you might as well you know do a different take on it and i feel having a lead elvis vocal version of it as well just completes the set nicely doesn't it but what a great song you know it's everybody's got a story like that (laughs) you know it's such a relatable relatable lyric In 2020, the album Hey Clock Face is released and it's credited as an Elvis Costello and Sebastian Chris production. And this is very different to look now in the way that it's conceived and recorded because this is recorded all over the place, uh, partly yeah. by design, partly by necessity with what was going on in the world with sessions in Helsinki, uh, in Paris and in New York. And then how does that work? Does that then all come to you to kind of executive produce the whole thing? Um, yeah, I mean, we were, you know, we were slated to go to England, um, and record, uh, we were supposed to get there March 13th, 2020. Obviously that didn't happen. Uh, you know, the world shut down and, and he had started, uh, making this record and then it was just a matter of, okay, let's, let's organize it and and you know figure it out and then the the um michael leonhardt uh songs came in um you know he had the uh, Helsinki sessions which were pretty um you know those songs were were pretty much done uh by the time i got to mix it and then it was just a matter of like editing and cleaning up and and putting it together and figuring out you know sequencing and what would make a you know, a good album. And, and, you know, I I think it's a record that gets overlooked a little bit because it's so eclectic, but it's really, I mean, there's some really wonderful songs on that record. Uh, Some, some really, you know, stark songwriting. And and I think what they did in Paris is, you know, there's some great performances there. It's, I mean, I I listened to it, you know, we, we had been working at such a clip that you know we finished it mastered it it went out and then i recently listened to it again and i was i was just you know i was taken aback by by in its in its eclecticism how cohesive it actually is um yes you know um and and there's some really wonderful moments on the in that in that record yeah the cohesiveness belies the conditions in which it was recorded, really, doesn't it? But I, I think it's such a dense album, and it's some records kind of they're an immediate hit. They're a bit like a sugar rush, but they then very quickly drift away. Whereas, hey, Clockface is one of those that just rewards you listening to it again and again because it seems to reveal itself over time. Yeah, I mean, it's got songs, you know, like like Whirlwind that are just, you know, as a composition, it's about as good as it gets. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I, I don't know what category I would put that record in, you know, um, other than if there was like a fearless, yeah. you know, uh, category in the, on the shelf somewhere. But, 
you know, and I, I love the spoken word stuff, which, you know, I hadn't heard him do before. You know, I, I thought that that was really, that was really interesting and, and yeah. different and, and, and engaging. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it, it definitely is a, a, you know, a record that grows on you. Um, and, and I love, you know, I've, I've seen them live recently and, and I love the versions they're doing live of that record. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting how, how they've evolved uh, once that the band started performing. Yeah. Oh, well, that's just around the corner for us in the UK. So I'm very much looking forward to hearing some of these for the first time. Um, I totally agree on the spoken word, couple of tracks as well there. And and it's such a bold way to start the album with Revolution 49, because the, the obvious thing to do would be to put something like No Flag as the first track, you know, foot in the door. This is, here we are, we've arrived. But instead you get this spoken word number that's set against a quite unsettling, almost Arabic-sounding uh, music bed underneath it. Such a cool thing to do. Yeah, that was, uh, when we were sequencing it, that was, you know, I, I suggested that we do that. Um, it just felt like an opener when I was mixing mm. it. It felt like like something that'll that'll tell you right away you're getting into something that you haven't gotten into before. Cold as stone, hot as winter. She turned to me, and this she said, Kiss me once, and you'll remember. Lay with me, till we're both dead. The land was white, the wind a dagger. Life beats a poor man to his grave. Love makes a rich man from a beggar. Love is the one thing we can save. Opening with no flag would lead the listener in, in you know, into the wrong mindset. Mm. Um, you know, they they think if you're opening with that, then that's the kind of record you're about to get into. And then you know, mm. if you follow that with hey clockface, it you know, it, it doesn't make sense. So yeah. so to me, it it it, it kind of made. You know, it made sense to get the listener in a mood of expect the unexpected. And that, that mm. seemed like the right message to send from the top, you know, and, and, and he agreed, which, you know, he's he's really, I mean, on, on Look Now, we went back and forth on sequencing a lot. And that was, you know, I, I think you want to, when you sequence an album, you really want to, number one, um, engage the listener number two um you know really really prepare in any way you can for what they might be about to experience but not give it all away um you know i i think it's really it's a real shame when you know you hear an opening track and and then you know it's just deception <laughs> you know af afterwards so i i think it's I think it's important to to engage the listener and and tell them, okay, you're you know, come with me on this trip, uh, you know, if you choose, and if you don't, you know, it's it it's fine, uh, but I but I want you to trust that this will be a a journey worthwhile. Yeah, 
Well, this one certainly is. I, I love Hey Clockface, and I can remember when it was announced that the boy named If was coming out. I thought, hang on, I, I still haven't finished right. absorbing Hey Clockface yet, because, as we say, it is one that sort of just reveals itself the more and more you listen to it. There's this tendency, isn't there, when a new Costello record comes out, to try and find what it sounds like elsewhere in his catalogue. And right. there was a bit of this with The Boy Named Div. It's like, oh, it's very brutal youth. It's this and it's that, which I understand. I do find it a bit frustrating at times when people do that rather than just listening to it on its own merits. But if you are going to play that game, I can't think of another album that Hey Clockface sounds like. It is, it's a one-off, I think, in his catalogue. I don't know what you think well, about I, that. I think, I think they all are. I mean, it's... Of course, yeah. You know, well, but but seriously, like, is there another album that's like this year's model? You know, in, in the 32 albums he's made, um, you know, or like Get Happy. I, I just don't, I think, I think that's human nature, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what something is supposed to be just mm. based on what you know. And, and I think the wonderful thing about making music is that when you go into it, you go into it not knowing you go into it with an idea but it's unknown you know it's like it's like a, a you know a football match you know you put your 11 players out there you know they're they're your songs and you put them in the you know the position you think they should be playing and then you know in the, in the next 90 minutes anything can happen you you have a plan but at the end of the day you know it takes creativity and a little bit of luck and you know, and, and a lot of commitment um, and, and wanting to push this thing through. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's kind of annoying with, with especially an artist like him, you know, that, that has been so consistently um, great in, in exploring music to have people go like, well, it's a return to form. I mean, the Juliet Letters is a return to form, you know. Uh, it, it's, I mean, who who else has made an album like that? Hmm. You know that that you know of. You know, so it's it it's just. I mean, I understand that. You know, people that that he meant something to people when he came out, but you know, when he first released his first album, you know, I was nine years old, so. I, I just don't look at it that way. You know, I'm not attached to the early stuff in that way. I just, it's just music. And it's it's watching an artist explore how how far, you know, his, his musical interests can go. Um, and that's that's really why I became a fan of his work. You know, not, not because of, you know, the angry, young, whatever. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I became a fan because it's like, okay, he put out Mighty Like a Rose and then he put out Juliet Letters, you know, and I, I, and I was like, oh, you know, first of all, I was intrigued about when that happened, how do you convince a record company to do that? Hmm. You know, because I, I was just starting in the business and I was like, I was fascinated by, you know, how do you get people to finance a string quartet album if they view you as you know a, a rock musician or a pop musician and that was really that was really fascinating to me to you know try to unpack that 
um, as a professional, you know, as somebody that, that didn't want to make one kind of music. You know, during the pandemic, we just, we didn't stop. No. You know, we did, um, we did the, the great thing for Audible, the how to play mm -hmm. guitar and why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which was a lot of fun. Um, you know, and then, then, you know, with the French EP, he just, you know, he said, uh, you know, I want to do a version in, in French of No Flag. Then he said, I, I'm going to reach out to Iggy Pop. And I'm, I had no idea that Iggy Pop sang in French, as I'm sure many people don't. Uh, but that, you know, that alone is like, this is cool. I get to, you know, mix a track with Iggy Pop's vocal on it. Um, and then that turned into an EP, you know, he, he found the, the, uh, the remixers, uh, Shegway, I think it's pronounced. Um, and, you know, we just, it was just another fun project to be a part of. Um, and how do we, you know, how do we pull these together and, and make it into something different than a clock face, but based on, you know, on, on that album. Mm. So that's Le Faste Pondu La Cocu in 2021. And later in the year, we get Spanish Model, the reimagining of the Attractions 1978 album, This Year's Model, which I think follows the remix of This Year's Girl for the TV show The Juice. Right. Elvis said, we revisited the tapes and found them in good order. And when we pushed the faders up without my voice, something was happening that you had never heard quite that way before. Um, and you were responsible for identifying the artists were you to come in and, and take the different tracks well i mean first it was you know it's daunting to take a, a record like that i mean it's you know i i said this is like painting a mustache on the mona lisa you know <laughs> um you know i was expecting death threats and you know and, and strange packages at my doorstep <laughs> um, I mean, there were many nights where I, w I woke up and I was like, what, you know, what, are, what am I doing? And then I would remind myself, you know, this came from him. Yeah. Um, and it makes sense when you see his trajectory that he'd do something like this. Um, as far as the artists go, I wanted the artist to reflect in some ways Elvis's career in the sense that it would have been really easy to do all sort of rock artists or indie artists or alternative or singer songwriters. Um, but, you know, I wanted to have a mix of artists that provoked the reaction in people that maybe some of his choices had provoked before. Like, why is he making a country record? You know, why, why is he in the Spice Girls movie? <laughs> you know, things of that nature. <laughs> So I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be the singer songwriters and the rock artists and the alternative artists, but I also wanted there to be, you know, through and through pop artists. 
Um, also because I felt like the, the writing, you know, it's a, it's a great pop album, uh, this year's model. It's got great, great melodies and, and great hooks. And, um, you know, obviously, you know, lyrics go without saying, but, uh, but to me it was more, first of all, how do we do the lyrics justice? Second of all, what voices work with those tracks? Um, because it's all, you know, the original recording. So, um, the attractions at that point could, you know, run over, you know, they were like a freight train. So if, if we get the wrong voice on a track, it's going to sound like karaoke. Um, you know, at the beginning, I tried to start mixing it, um, true to the original and quickly found out that that wasn't going to work. First of all, I couldn't do it. Uh, Roger Basharian, uh, you know, just did an, an amazing job and, and had a very unique perspective on sound. And it was of that time and just how he did it, you know, I could not replicate it. So I had to figure out really how to, how to make it work for the vocals that we, that we were recording. Um, and it was, you know, I, I think it turned out great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really happy with the result. And then there were things for me, like as a fan that I'm glad I got to do and, and share with other fans, like, you know, the end of no action. Like I always mm-hmm. wondered what happened, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, during that fade. Um, you know, I, I had heard that Mick Jones had played on Pump It Up, but hadn't heard, you know, the guitar. And obviously when I got the the sessions for that, you know, it was there and it's like, okay, I have to figure out a way to make this work if it works, you know, but it's, you turn on that guitar and it sounds like, you know, Mick Jones from the clash, um, you know, and things, things of that nature, I think were, were just a lot of fun and like little Easter eggs that for fans are, are fun to, to hear, you know, and let the songs kind of play on and not fade them out. Um, like the original record, I think is, is a fun, you know, it's a gift for fans and, Obviously, aesthetically, I mean, it sounds different than the original, but I, I still feel like it keeps the spirit uh, of the original. I mean, there was one point where I, I think I sent the mix and Pete heard it and, and he's like, is that me? <laughs> you know, and I was like, yeah, that's that's nothing got replaced. You know, that's you. it. Just it's just mixed differently. Oh, yo sé que soy ingrato. Tengo comida en el plato de souvenirs griten cuando tengan ganas pero abran la ventana Jorge Drexler uh, who sang um, Night Rally uh, said in in the interview on, you know, there's a a documentary that was made about the album. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, when when I first heard about this, I thought that it could go, you know, just horribly wrong, (laughs) you know. And and I think that was part of the the reason to do it was because you're teetering on that edge of something that could go horribly wrong. Mm And, and if, you know, if it goes, it's like, you know, walking the tightrope and, you know, if you, if you walk it and you make it across, you know, across the tightrope, then you're, you know, it's a triumph. If you fall off, you know, you're done. Yeah. 
and it's yeah, there's yeah. no safety net there and i and i i liked the that idea of of really taking a chance you know of of something that could be just terrible but i always felt very much elvis was such a big part of that record and making that record um that i always felt like okay i have the artist you know and i have the 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 writer the original writer of all this music and and the artist right there with me you know so i felt very much protected like you know i wasn't painting a mustache on the mona lisa mm -hmm. i was i was we were actually just creating something new um and and he was really encouraging and and really pushed and and you know as far as the vocals go we would think of a couple of people and i would send them youtube videos of a couple of different people and then you know he'd tell me i could really imagine you know this voice on this song um some of the older artists that are on it felt a lot more weight right. um than than the younger artists that weren't as familiar with his work who just like went for it um so so that part of it was was really interesting also to see the the generational uh response to being asked to be on the project you know and how how they approached it and you know and the fearlessness of some of the younger artists and the sort of trepidation of some of the older artists and and not everybody was like that but but it was it was definitely you could you could see the context of the people that took part of it but but i'm, I'm really proud of that record and that it it was a it took a while it took a lot of work and you know again that's one that we finished you know in the middle of we would say you know like we got to get all this music done because we don't know if there's going to be a world left you know so, <laughs> so we gotta 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 keep creating so yeah. somebody you know finds it in a you know when this becomes planet of the apes they find a box <laughs> full of these records that were made January 2022 sees the release of the album The Boy Named Div. You are credited with Elvis as co-producing the album. Elvis says the album takes us from the last days of a bewildered childhood to that mortifying moment when you're told to stop acting like a child, which for most men and a few gals can be any time in the next 50 years. Does Elvis tell you what the songs are about when you're going into the project so that you can understand where he's coming from and how you can potentially realize them? Um, no, you know, we, we actually, I've asked him questions about, you know, like during Spanish model, I, I would ask him questions about certain lyrical references because we were doing adaptations and, and I've been curious about certain songs, what he was referring to you know, from his past, but, but no, I think that's a, the exact thing that, that music does. It's, I'm sure he has the reason why he wrote it and the intent of the song, but at the end of the day, 
the wonderful thing about music is that it could mean something completely different to me. You know, it's like like the the story of Green Shirt. Mm. To me, it just takes me to like the military dictatorship in, in in Argentina, which is really what what the track on the Roots record is about. What Cinco Minutos con Vos is about that. Um, to me, the songs need to mean whatever they mean to me, whether I'm working on them uh, with an artist or or I'm just a listener. I, and I think that, you know, he's such a great writer that there are times when, you know, they can be interpreted in, in any which way. And there's times when they're very specific, um, you know, and, and I, I think I heard him say once, you know, if, you know, when people ask him what the song's about, he goes, well, if I would have, you know, if, if it was about something other than what it's about, I would have written a different song, you know, so... No, we we really don't, you know, we don't we don't get into it that way. It's more about does it tell a story? Is it emotionally uh, painting the picture that it needs to paint? And I think that that's that's the key to to any kind of uh, music making is that if I'm trying to get into his head and what it means to him then I'm emotionally detaching myself to the song and what it might mean to me. So, you know, there's, there's a song like Death of Magic Thinking, which is, you know, very obvious what, what it's about. But the references in the song are his references, and I have to equate those references to things that, you know, what, what, was, what was I playing as a child that you know what was the the point you know which is obviously a different story than whatever the story is he's telling um you know with with the, all the references to you know landing a plane and flying a plane and, and and playing in that in that sense um you know that that's maybe not what i did you know as a kid um you know maybe i was a soldier or, you know whatever whatever it was that i was playing when i was eight or nine years old um so yeah so the the answer is 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 no because i think it would it would tarnish what the song means to me um again you know i i've asked you know some some very specific references about other other songs that i've always been curious about um but you know only on on a handful of occasions Mm. the boy named dave is a wonderful album it's been released to universally great reviews and it debuts at number six over here in the UK album chart, Selvis's highest chart position in, in nearly 30 years. It's an unqualified success. How do you feel about it now it's um, it's been out for a couple of months? Um, you know, it was, it was really such a blessing to be able to work on it um, for, for many reasons. Uh, one was because when, you know, when we finished Look Now, you know, I said to my wife, well, that happened. You know, and that will never happen again. <laughs> you know, so yeah, yeah. I, I was just sort of like, you know, well, that was cool. I go on, go on about my my business. Um, and the the thing about that album, it was the dynamic that we got into, and the and the ferocity with which he was writing these songs. He'd send a song, and and it was great. And then you know, a day later, he'd send. He's like, I've written another one. And, and, and each song just kept surprising you. Um, 
and with with the difference of of you know a record like look now there were some songs that that had been around um you know obviously he wrote new songs for it but there were songs that that he had written which he was you know waiting for the right moment to record or the right context to record them in um you know like the like burnt sugar with uh with carol king which he had written i think 20 or 25 years before um so you know just to to hear these these tunes and and hear them come alive and then you know sending the files back and forth to the band and to pete and davy and just the way the dynamic worked was was really i mean it was just so much fun you know and, and also interestingly enough as a producer working through zoom all of a sudden when you're working in the studio you, you know you're in a room and there's glass and there's about 20 feet or 10 15 feet and then the artist is over there or the musicians you know 30 40 feet away from you when I, I was on zoom you know all of a sudden like they're just right there in your face performing um you know and, and the sessions i mean i just have this great memory of we're being we were online with steve naive and he he you know was just throwing out all these ideas that were the way the way that he is just insanely creative and and things that you could never dream up and i mean i just remember being on the floor you know mm -hmm. just bowled over you know and and laughing and and enjoying watching steve create um mm -hmm. you know so it, it was it was a great you know it was a great experience and for me i mean the first success of of an album is before anybody gets it is how do you feel about it and i really just like you i just loved this record uh for for different reasons but but mainly you know i, I thought it was such a great subject matter that runs through the record that isn't spoken about enough some of it very heartbreaking you know some of it dark and and some of it you know just i mean having seen my kids go through that you know seeing my my boys become men it's it's uh you know it's like why do we stop playing you know why why do we have to start acting like adults there's a guy in my neighborhood he's got to be in his 80s and he's got this leopard suit like full-on you know like a proper just like formal suit that's just yeah, all yeah. leopard skin and once in a while i'll see him walking around the neighborhood in his leopard skin suit you know not going anywhere just walking around and it's just like yeah yeah man the joy of that you know i mean we just we love it we see him with my wife and kids and it's like there's the old guy in the leopard suit i mean wh why not That was part one of my conversation with Sebastian Chris. A big thank you to him for giving up his Sunday morning to chat. In part two, we'll talk about some of his favourite songs from across Elvis Costello's career. As with all of my guests, Sebastian will pick out a track from each decade to add to the playlist. Check out that episode soon on all podcast platforms or via my website, dangerousamusements.co.uk. All of my previous episodes are on there for you as well. Make sure you're following on Twitter at Dangerous Amuse and Dangerous Amusements on Instagram. Sebastian is on both as Sebastian Chris. 
The theme music for the podcast is performed by Gary Mulcahy. This was Dangerous Amusements, the podcast that seemed like a fine idea at the time.